It's Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Today we do live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I am your host. Today is Friday. That means we do a live Q&A show. Open to the listeners of the show. Want to call in, talk about anything we want. Uh, I'm open to any questions. Happy to answer personal questions. Happy to discuss the themes of the show. These shows are, as one uh, well-known talk show host says, Open Line Friday. Hate to peep, I hate to ever steal anybody else's stuff, but you know it's hard to hard to beat Open Line Friday, especially in this particular context. Uh, but here on Fridays, any time that I can arrange the appropriate technology for me to be able to record, I do a live Q and A show with listeners of the show. If you would like to gain access to one of these live Q and A shows to talk to me, frankly, it's probably the best deal that you're ever going to get. If you want to talk to me and, and talk about the particulars of your situation, you can do that by going to Patreon.com/slash/RadicalPersonalFinance. Patreon.com/slash/RadicalPersonalFinance, or just search Patreon for Radical personal finance sign up to support the show there on patreon and that will uh then you'll give it you'll have access to the call information for these uh so that you can call in and talk about whatever you want to talk about and i love doing them you guys have great questions and uh really great conversations with uh really everything that we talk about so uh, i'm so glad that you are here and uh i'm excited i'm, I'm happy we've got five callers on the line right now so let's go all right needed to stall for about six seconds but jeremy you're on jeremy welcome to the show how can i serve you today sir Hi, Joshua. Um, after listening to some past episodes in which you discuss Bitcoin, uh, I had a few questions on the topic. Okay. Uh, so, I, so I guess first, um, are you still a supporter of Bitcoin and would you recommend it as a store of value or long-term investment in a diversified portfolio? Uh, I uh, Second. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, my wife and I are business owners, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just wondering if we're planning on offering Bitcoin as a payment option to our contractors, is the purchase of Bitcoin a deductible business expense? And and the and my last question was, uh, I'm wondering if you're familiar with the company BlockFi or similar companies. Uh, BlockFi lets you deposit cryptocurrencies and pays you interest on the deposits. And so the, the current rates right now, the current APY on Bitcoin balances is 6% and goes up to 8.5% for other cryptos. And the interest compounds and is paid in the cryptocurrency of your choosing curious if you're familiar with services like that and if you would recommend them. One of my goals for 2020 was to become a cryptocurrency expert. I am not a cryptocurrency expert, and that particular goal was uh, consumed by uh, was subsumed by other things that I was uh, involved in, and so I am behind where I feel like I should be. Uh, and so you need to filter my answers through that lens that, okay, Joshua is probably more informed than the average person but he is by no means an expert. So the first answer to your first question, do I support um, Bitcoin? The answer to the question first and foremost is yes, I support the concept of Bitcoin and the concept of cryptocurrency more than I ever have before in my life. I 
I generally adhere from from a from a monetary perspective, I generally adhere to the idea that people should be able to use any medium of exchange that they wish to use. That would align with what's known as the Austrian School of Economics. And so I think that you should be able to print your own money in your basement and that you should be able to use that for anybody who will accept what you choose to print or what you choose to create as money. And so I would like to see a world in which we have lots and lots of of competing currencies. At the moment, we've generally only had that among national governments. Now, it is possible you see that certain town will create a local town currency. It's not necessarily illegal for people to use something else as currency, but most of the competition among currencies has flown on a nation-state basis. So you have the U.S. dollar competing against the British pound, competing against the Chinese yuan, competing against the Japanese yen, competing against the euro, competing against the Swiss franc. And these national currencies Currencies are controlled by the the Federal Reserve banks generally of those countries. And so I don't mind if a national government wants to create a currency. Uh, I just wish that the rest of us had the opportunity to compete more with them. Now, over the years, um, this has been a big argument about, well, maybe we should change something. There's all the arguments about the Federal Reserve, et cetera. That system, as far as I can see, is not likely to change anytime soon. And so What I do like is I like the idea of people being able to have other choices, but the other choices are quite limited, and the other choices that have traditionally held true have some significant problems. So, for example, I encourage, when practical and when possible, I personally encourage the use of gold and silver coins as a medium of exchange. I own gold and silver coins. I would be happy to take gold and silver coins as payment. I'm happy to give gold and silver coins as payment, sort of. We'll come back to you in a moment. But that that system really only works with a physical environment where, yes, I could go to my neighbor and we could explain, exchange gold and silver coins for services offered, but that, number one, nobody knows what they're worth. Nobody's really in tune with it. Nobody knows what to do with them when they get them. And so as much as those who are gold bugs and silver bugs would like to argue that they should be more uh, universal, it just doesn't seem to me that we're going back to that physical world, which leaves us kind of in a, in a quandary. We need some kind of digital money But yet, the only real digital money that we can use is the money associated with a national government, such as the U.S. dollars. The vast majority of U.S. dollars are digital currency. They don't exist in any physical form, but they work really well. And so you see that that U.S. dollars fill that function. But over the past few years, I've grown really, really nervous about our reliance and dependency on one particular currency because of all of the gatekeepers. And so let's talk from a U.S. American perspective. The U.S. government has done a wonderful job of barring and of putting people, of putting massive um, obstruction up against uh, the against people to to use U.S. dollars in a digital form without giving up their privacy and without giving up every detail of their life. So I had a tremendous problem recently opening a number of bank accounts that I needed, and I I was turned down by three different banks um, in order to open a bank account simply because I have an unusual physical profile. I don't my my physical profile doesn't look like most people's. Where I say yes, I live at one two three Maple Street. Here's everything my physical profile is different. And so I got turned down across the board. And that just in 
showed me how reliant I am on to on the banking systems. And I've done international banking. I've had trouble getting international bank accounts across the world. It just seems like if you want a bank account and if you a bank account and I'm in, to be clear, I'm involved in nothing illegal. I do nothing illegal. I simply have a different profile than most people because of the way that I live my life and the way that I move around, etc. I'm a U.S. citizen, born and raised, but yet, but yet, because of my weird addresses and whatnot, it's it's a tremendous problem. And so, even though my my actual needs for the bank account were fairly straightforward, I had a very very difficult time even getting a bank account. In addition. I had a, a very frustrating experience of having been approved for one bank account and then having that bank account um, denied by, denied for me later after the bank continued their their process of, of due diligence and whatnot. I failed some of their screens because I looked like an abnormal person. Now, obviously, there is a solution to this. I could move to 123 Maple Street in any town USA. I could align everything with that, and I could have a normal profile. And I've actually come to the point where I now recommend that to many people rather than some of the other services because it's very hard to do business in the modern world if you have any kind of unusual profile. I could do that. But I've learned that this is, a real, this is really troubling. In addition... I've watched a number of areas that I care about because go out of political favor. So, for example, over the last couple of years, the two, just two, I'm sure that there are more, but well, I'll use three. Okay. So, there are three important examples. Number one um, would be uh, the problem with people who are involved in the marijuana industry to get banking services. We in the United States have this very strange and difficult um, situation where people who are involved in the marijuana so marijuana is still illegal at a federal level and yet there are many states <clears throat> um, including the district of columbia right there are many states who have legalized the use of marijuana some under medical restriction some under uh, some with no restrictions at all or some with for recreational use but with uh, with amounts and so you have people who are operating businesses uh, who are uh, involved in the local market. They're operating businesses. They're not hiding in a back alley doing drug deals on the corner of street. They simply have a store there on the front, on Main Street in many cases, where they're selling marijuana. But these businesses, because of the federal regulation of banks, they have a very difficult time um, getting any kind of banking services. They have a difficult time setting up merchant payment accounts. They have a difficult time getting banking services. Um, in most cases, it's impossible. And so this creates a lot of trouble for them because even if they're selling their goods in physical cash, they still have to go and pay their suppliers usually in, in some kind of digital money. And so that's one example. Another industry that really came under fire a few years ago, it's been quiet over the last couple of years, but really came into fire was the firearms industry. And there have been many, many firearms um, manufacturers and firearms component manufacturers who were started to lose banking services. Some of them were uh, lost loans and whatnot because of interacting with the banking uh, with the big banks, they decided, okay, we don't want to lend money anymore. But some of them actually lost banking services. And also, they've had a lot of their ability to use various exchanges, public exchanges, limited by things like payment forms of payment processing, like PayPal, right? Okay, can, can we get up? Can we get, can we list a product and to use PayPal as a form of money transfer? Well, in some cases, no. A third example would be there have been a number of Christian ministries that I've watched over the last few years that have been delisted and disavowed by their uh, by their payment processors because those Christian ministries got put on a blacklist, uh, a blacklist due to something that they believe, something that they stand for. Often it has to do with the um, 
the what's, the what's the organization human human rights uh watch uh all the spl the splc etc so they get that blacklist and so all of a sudden sometimes their banks don't want to do business with them but more often it's the it's the merchant processors they get delisted by stripe stripe won't do business with them then you know paypal won't do business with them and so there have been a number of christian ministries that were massively affected where they had supporters that were digitally transferring money to them but now the supporters can't digitally transfer money and so they're they're reduced to simply sending physical paper checks through the mail, which, of course, they should be prepared for, right? They should prepare their supporters to do that. But we live in a world in which that makes a massive difference in your ability to collect money. So um, I'm not... Pers- I, I, I pers- This is one of those weird areas because I want to support the freedom of any business's right to discriminate as they choose. I don't believe that PayPal should be forced to do business with gun people if they don't want to. I don't believe that Bank of America should be forced to do business with Christian ministries if they don't want to. I, I, so I, I believe in the right of discrimination um, by any person and any company for any reason that they want to. But it shows us the difficulty that we're in, where there's not really a good alternative. So if you find yourself in a position where you're being discriminated against by all of the people involved, especially due to federal legislation, then it's 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 very difficult. It's, it's, it's hard to operate. And so what do we need? We desperately need a solution to this. We desperately need the ability to exchange value and to do it digitally in a world that is not chained to the limitations of you know gold coins and in a world that's not chained to the chained to the limitations of physical currency that's the other thing is i didn't used to really believe that there was a war on cash i used to really think that you know what people have chosen of their own free will to move to digital money rather than to use physical currency but over the last couple of years i've become persuaded from my own experimentation that there is a war on cash and you see this to some extent in the united states but you see this massively on a global basis um there have been many places around the world that have made the use of normal amounts of cash and large amounts of cash um, illegal. And so you can go to places in Europe, and if you, you know, go to Spain, and I can't remember what the number is, but if you're going to try to buy a car and it's you try to buy a $10,000 car, well, you can't do it. Um, India, a couple of years ago, phased out the um, – phased out the uh, – uh, the you know some of their larger bills. And it was a very cash-heavy economy, and it caused massive problems. The European Union um, has the European Federal Reserve Bank has recently decided to stop listing the 500 euro note. What what, are, what what's always claimed about this? What's always claimed? Oh, it's about drugs. It's about drugs. It's about drugs. And nobody seems to understand that number one, the drug you know the whole drug thing in the beginning, in my opinion, was a major mistake. Um, in the beginning, it was a problem to to be in the situation where people. People are, are um, putting themselves in, in, in an environment where we're going to have the drug war. The drug war in the beginning was a major mistake. Now, many people believe that the, the drug war is a major mistake, and so many people have come to the position where they're no longer going to prosecute the drug war. They're going to put themselves in a situation where we're going to legalize drugs, right? Oregon, Oregon in the United States just recently legalized drugs of many kinds, including the, the so-called hard drugs. Um, okay, fine, but now we're still going to argue about the use of cash as funding crime and funding drugs as though that's the only thing. And you see that everybody seems to be accepting it. Nobody seems to be standing up and saying we're going to do this. We're going to do this any differently. So in this situation, to me, this is this is this is very concerning to me because it means that that um, our oper- our options are are genuinely becoming fewer and fewer. And so we need a solution. 
ideologically, it seems to me that that solution should very clearly be some form of cryptocurrency. So ideologically, I think more than ever before, I believe that this is what we need to be focused on. I believe that this is where we need to have our attention is in developing those 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 cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies can solve and do solve some of these significant problems that we have. And so we should be very focused on really developing cryptocurrencies, in my opinion. That's the ideological position. Now, technically speaking, where do I think we are in the process? Well, we're in the very, very early stages of it. Um, Bitcoin has not been around very long. And today there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of competing currencies that all have different benefits and disadvantages for their people, uh, for, for people. And so I, I've, I've reviewed the arguments. Uh, you know, Previously on the show, I've said, well, Bitcoin has certain disadvantages. I've had listeners write to me and say, well, Joshua, here's what you don't understand. Here's why Bitcoin will actually be um, good in the long term. Uh, and so I see, uh, there, but there are lots of other competing currencies. And right now, as I see it, it's such an overwhelming marketplace, it's hard to give advice. T- today, it's still hard to, to, relatively hard for many people to figure out how to go and get cryptocurrency. Um, we're still beset by this tremendous problem of the instability of cryptocurrency. I am not confident uh, buying significant amounts of Bitcoin because I'm not interested in Bitcoin as an investment. I'm interested in Bitcoin as a currency. And so in time, will we have one currency that winds up being stable and others that are more speculative? I don't know, but I don't want, I don't want, if I'm going to use currency, I don't want something that's going to go up and down. This is the major problem with things like silver and gold you still see is that why are people reluctant to part with their silver? Why are people reluctant to part with their gold? I am, right? I don't like to spend it because I think, well, it might go up in value in the, in the future. Whereas I'm not reluctant to part with currency, physical US dollars, because well, I know they're going down in value, so I might as well part with them or save them in some other form. So to number one, I support it conceptually, but I'm not competent enough to talk through those other issues. And I've been trying to get there, but I haven't been able to do it yet. Number two, business owner as payment option, deductible business expense. I don't know the technical answer or if there any is there any reason why there wouldn't based upon that the way the, that the IRS has categorized uh, cryptocurrencies. But my instinct is that, yes, you can deduct uh, your uh, Bitcoin just as a payment just like anything else. Um, the IRS doctrines regarding what is deductible and what are not are very, very consistent. For all of the wackiness that people allege to the tax code, a lot of it makes sense. The IRS is fairly consistent with regard to doctrine. So to me, I would answer this question by saying, let's start with barter. Um, When you engage in barter exchanges, the IRS considers that if you have a taxable profit, even if you don't have any, sorry, if you have profit in the transaction, even if you don't have any money, the IRS considers that you're supposed to pay tax on the gain that you achieved in the barter transaction. And so just because you're paying with Bitcoin, as I see it, that's no different than paying with US dollars. It's no different than paying with euros, et cetera. The question is, what are your actual costs? So I think that would work totally fine and be no and have no no concerns there. If I were able to set up where I would take Bitcoin and um, pay with Bitcoin, then I would just simply account for it based upon the market price at the time of the transaction. To the third question of block um, BlockFi, I I am not familiar with it. I, I don't have any comments on it. 
Um, sorry, just to go back to question two, the, let's say we purchased $5,000 of Bitcoin to make payments. Would that initial purchase be a deductible business expense or only when there's transactions and then we would look at cost basis and things like that? That's, that's that question that I need to brush up on because a couple of years ago, the IRS came out with a formal clarification on how Bitcoin was to be treated. Um, and I'll look it up, but it was, it wasn't, they didn't t- decide to treat it as money. So let's say that you were converting from us dollars into euros. That's not a, that's not a, um, that's not a, a, a deductible expense. Um, and I can't see how, and so everyone was frustrated and it's not straight in my head enough to, to clearly talk about it, but everyone was frustrated that Bitcoin was going to be taxed as a capital gain asset, not as money, but okay, there was, there was benefits to it. So my, my answer is no, I can't see why converting us dollars into Bitcoin would be any kind of, any kind of, of, um, tax deductible exchange unless your business is specifically in the business of Bitcoin and that's, that's, you know, inventory, but I can't see how that would happen. So I would not try to deduct that myself based upon, um, my impressions, but I could be mistaken on that. Okay. Um, as always, that was all, um, very helpful. So thank you. Yeah. So let's here. I've got the, the I've got the page right here. So we're on irs.gov virtual currencies. We're going to skip what is virtual currency. We're going to go straight to the tax consequences. The sale or other exchange of virtual currencies or the use of virtual currencies to pay for goods or services or holding virtual currencies as an investment generally has tax consequences that could result in tax liability. Uh, and so we've got IRS notice 2014-21, which basically says that how is virtual currency treated for federal tax purposes? Answer, for federal tax purposes, virtual currency is treated as property. Uh, general tax principles applicable to property transactions apply to transactions using virtual currency. Uh, is virtual currency treated as currency? No. Must a taxpayer who receives virtual currency as payment for goods or services include in computing gross income the fair market value of the virtual currency? Yes. What is the basis of virtual currency received as payment for goods or services? The basis is the fair market value of the virtual currency in U.S. dollars as of the date of receipt. Does a taxpayer have gain or loss upon an exchange of virtual currency for other property? Yes. Um, Does it? talks about mining does virtual currency received by an independent contractor for performing services constitute self-employment income yes and here is a person is a person who in the course of trade or business makes a payment using virtual currency worth six hundred dollars or more to an independent contractor for performing services required to file an information return with the irs uh, looks like the answer is yes. Payments of virtual currency required to be reported on Form 1099 should be reported using the fair market value of the virtual currency. Are payments made using virtual currency subject to backup withholding? Um, looks like yes. Well, sort of. I'm, I'm skipping that one. So um, so the short answer is that uh, you, you should read that IRS guidance um, uh, letter 2014-16. Sorry, IRS bulletin 2014-16. And consider how that would apply to those specific questions. Um, I do, I do applaud you for this. I think that regardless of the tax implications, I think that you should um, go through. If you believe 
ideologically what I described about the value of virtual currency in our society, if you believe ideologically in that, that that makes sense to you as to why this is worthwhile, then you should go through the extra hassle of setting it up so that you can accept it, so that it increases the use of the virtual currency. Because that that is, yes. the, that is the thing that those who are Bitcoin advocates need to do is we need to make it so that you can pay with Bitcoin in many, many places. And to the extent that that happens, to the extent that you can take your cell phone and you can go into restaurants, go into stores and just simply make a Bitcoin transfer right there, that is the best thing that I'm aware of to do right now that will advance the cause of cryptocurrency, hopefully allowing us now to have systems that aren't interfered with on that aren't interfered with by the banks as intermediaries and that aren't interfered with, with by government regulation in the way that I described it. Um, yeah, and I suppose the root of my confusion just comes from the fact that the IRS is treating it like property and not currency. So if a business buys property um, that they're going to use to, you know, um, govern their transactions, um, that I thought might be a deductible expense, but I can dig more into yeah. the IRS document you referenced. That would be a good question for a, uh, that would be a good question, I think, for an accountant who's more qualified um, than I am. So, all right, I got uh, nine more callers. I got to move a little faster. Carlos in Pennsylvania, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. Uh, my question is going to be around guaranteed income during early retirement. Okay. So my, the general question is, you know, for somebody who's going to retire, let's say around 40, um, do you have any recommendation on uh, some type of system to provide guaranteed uh, income, kind of what a normal retiree would do within, with an annuity, but, you know, doing it at 40 changes, changes things. So I wanted to see if you had any, any ideas. What assets, what investments assets do you own or do you anticipate owning at 40? It's going to be, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have, you know, regular 401k IRA and then also just taxable with mutual With and, mutual funds in them. So you ha you're going to own mutual funds as your investments. Do you have any investment assets that aren't mutual funds? Uh, it, it's all in index funds, you know, equities, mm -hmm. bonds, and some in um, like real assets, but everything in financial instruments. So REITs and, you know, gold ETFs, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I would probably give lower priority to that at 40. So here's the thing about guaranteed income. Guaranteed income is a useful financial planning tool because it allows the individual uh, person who's, who's planning on it, it allows that person to sleep better at night. So I, I recommend regularly guaranteed income for somebody who's moving into retirement age because it allows the person to sleep well at night. They know, hey, no matter what, I have some money coming in. Now, usually, Social Security is often enough. Social Security, perhaps with uh, some annuity payments, is, is enough. Maybe the person has a pension. But the entire goal is for the person to sleep well at night. And so I've used the example frequently when I was doing this for retirees. I would talk about and I would say, um, imagine two friends. All right? You've got, you've got um, Joe, who's a retired corporate executive who has $3 million in his 401k. And he's taking money from that 401k. 
And he's 65 years old. He's taking money from the 401k. And that's his exclusive source of income. And now all of a sudden, we're in 2008 or in 2000 and what was it, 20 uh, or in 2001. Now we're in some kind of market situation like that. How well is Joe sleeping well at night? Whereas compare that to Tom. Tom is a retired firefighter. Maybe his wife is a retired teacher. And Tom doesn't have any money in a 401k, but he's got $8,000 a month coming in from his firefighter's pension. How well was he sleeping at night in 2008? or 2020? The answer, most people would say, oh, a lot better. And so that kind of sparks the reason why people want the guaranteed income. It makes them feel better to know they have an income. But at the end of the day, if we're going to back out and look at it, it's it's kind of a ruse. It's, It's not actually true from a technical standpoint, from a technical financial standing planning standpoint. First of all, the guaranteed income has its own set of risks. Um, you know, if Tom was, I can't remember my name. So if the retired firefighter was a retired firefighter from the state of Illinois, is his pension as, as secure as the $3 million in mutual funds of the retired executive? It's a it's a good question, right? My, the answer is it might be for today, but I'm not so sure about 15 years from now. So maybe the retired firefighter shouldn't be sleeping quite so well at night. Meanwhile, on the other hand, the retired executive, how much money does he actually have? Um, if he's got $3 million in investments and he also has $300,000 in a bank account and he spends $65,000 a year, then he should be able to sleep pretty well through those circumstances because he's, he's he doesn't need the money. And so although I I don't think it's wrong to talk to people about the value of guaranteed income, it makes people feel better at night and sleep well at night. And thus, it's right. It's not – you shouldn't always do what's the perfect thing to do from a technical financial planning standpoint. You should do what's the best thing to do for you based upon your life. But when you move back to 40, now it becomes harder because what, what what are your options for guaranteed income? You don't have any options for guaranteed income other than to go and buy an annuity. So you could go and buy an annuity, but I don't think I would do that. I, I wouldn't do that at 40. I don't see any any benefit to that because you're giving up a lot of potential upside just for some measure of guaranteed income. Um, you could do things like buy a rental property. That's not guaranteed income. It is diversified, but it's not guaranteed. People, you know, Tenants stop paying and sometimes laws are passed and you can't kick your tenants out. So I would look at it and I would say, the concept of guaranteed income is not as important for somebody who's 40 as it is for someone who's older. So we do still need to plan for cash flow. But if you've got $3 million in your 401ks and your IRAs and your investment accounts and you're going to be spending $50,000 a year, you're going to be totally fine even if there's fluctuations in the value. And so what I would do in that situation is what I would advise for you to start with. Number one, I would stay invested and I wouldn't take a big chunk of money out to buy an annuity just to create guaranteed income. Number two, I would set enough money aside in cash in the bank that would help you to make sure that no matter what, I'm going to be good. My number would be two to three years of expenses. I don't have a a defense of that, a clear defense of it. But when you look at most crises and you imagine the world two to three years later, uh, um, you can go and do the historic analysis, but it's almost impossible to imagine in our modern world that most crises don't dramatically change two or three years later. So think to your working lifetime. Think back to 2001. You had the crisis of 2001. Two to three years later it was 2003, 2004. A lot changed. 2008, 2008, 2011. A lot changed. 2020. Well, 
we don't know where we're going to be in 2023, but I can guarantee you it's going to be a whole lot different than where we were in 2020. So I would keep a couple years worth of cash on the backside. And then what my backup plan would be, if I'm 40, is simply this. If I need to go back to work, I can. If I need to figure out a way to create more income from my from my working, I can do that. And so let's say that I've got two or three years worth of expenses, and all of a sudden there's a massive market crash, and I say, I don't want to, I don't want to start selling assets in this situation. I'm just gonna sit and hold. So I sit and hold for a year. Now I've gone from two years of cash to one year of living expenses in cash to one year of living expenses in cash. Um now I look around and I start to get nervous because we're in the midst of a, of a great depression, uh, another great depression. I say, I really don't want to sell my assets at these depressed prices. I really don't want to. So what do I do? Well, I have a year to figure out how to create some sort of income. And so what would I do? Well, I would go and get a job, the kind of job that I would enjoy. I might go and become a substitute teacher. I might go and start driving a bus. If I just wanted a simple job that, <clears throat> that I was able to do, um, I personally would keep a long list of backup plans of things that I could go and do. Um, I'm obsessive about this. I want multiple careers of, of things that I could do. So maybe you would you would say, let's use the driving example. You might keep a, a class A you know, commercial truck driver's license available just so that, hey, if I ever needed a job, I could go and get a job as a truck driver for a few months and make a little bit of money. Or maybe I would, uh, I would have a little business that I've always thought about doing that or have this little hobby. Maybe I'll go ahead and start making bird cages and selling them and make a couple thousand dollars a month at the local market with these bird cages that I sell. Um, I would also have other plans. And I think this is where early retirees have a major benefit over traditional retirees. Most people who achieve early the ability to retire early have achieved it by learning to be very creative and flexible with their expenses. The normal financial planning conversation between a financial planner and a 65-year-old retiring executive is that the retiring executive has substantial fixed expenses. He's got a $2,700 a month mortgage payment. He's got $10,000 a year of tax of property taxes. He's got uh, club memberships of X number of dollars. He's got a lifestyle expense of certain amount. He's got he, he's usually living a bigger lifestyle. And so when you're in that situation, you look at it and say, "All right, your minimum budget is going to be $6,000." a month, and then we're going to take another six to $10,000 a month from your retirement portfolio, but we're going to cover the $6,000 a month with guaranteed income. So you've got $3,000 a month with Social Security, and you've got we're going to put another $3,000 in place with an annuity. That way you know if things get tough, you don't get kicked out of your house. If things get tough, you, you don't have to stop going to the club or whatever it is. Most people, and I would guess you probably in that, most people who are on track to retire at 40 are far more flexible with their expenses. They're able to li- they're usually living on far less, and they're usually much more flexible. And so I would have a backup plan of something like this. Okay, I'm retiring at 40. I'm living in a house. Well, if I didn't want to sell investments, what would I do? I would rent out my house because that's most of my expenses. And I would move into my RV or I would rent out my house and I would go to Mexico and I would work on an organic farm um, just for room and board. Or I would rent out my house and I would go and get a job in a ski town doing seasonal employment. Or I would go work at Amazon during the Christmas rush. And I would just have those kinds of plans because to me, it's simpler to do those things. They satisfy the need. You could get a job at 43 years old if you needed to and wanted to in order to stop taking assets. You could create a way to make some money on a business of yours of some kind. And I'd much rather do that than give up a a big chunk of potential wealth to go and buy an annuity at 40 years old. That's me. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I really like that advice. Um, the, one of the reasons that I was, yeah, I'm definitely not going the annuity route. I just wanted to see if there were any other um, tools out there. Um, because the other thing that interested me was in getting residency permits in other countries, as I'm sure you know, a lot of the requirements is you got to be, you got to show some type of guaranteed income, you know, whether it be a thousand or two thousand dollars a month or so. Um, so I wasn't sure how I would be able to demonstrate that um, with, without some type of um, product like that. Yeah, you, you, the answer is you probably won't be able. If the country specifically requires you to have a guaranteed source of income for their, you know, pensionado visa, visa or something like that, then no, you're going to need to do you're going to need to demonstrate that. But um most countries will have a number of different options that you can choose from, including options of simply showing your wealth. And so that's that's something to look at on a country by country basis. And so maybe you say, okay, I really want to go to Belize and get set up a residency permit and residency program in Belize, but Belize requires me to have a guaranteed income. Okay. Well, maybe you don't go to Belize. Maybe you go to Mexico instead. Um, you know, Mexico has a beautiful Riviera Caribbean side, just like Belize does. And so maybe you just go to Mexico instead, and then you use the Mexican, you know, person of means visa, which you prove with with net worth, not with not with income. Um, there are plenty of options, and most countries have many options. That most, if you're looking at a country that for a residency program like that, then most countries will have other options. If not, then that would be the kind of thing where you could say, "Okay, I need this for this time." So, what I would do in that situation, if I needed to prove that, I would first talk to my talk to a lawyer and understand what the government of the country I'm interested in is going to look at, and then what you can do is just simply set up a shorter term annuity, probably. So perhaps you look at it and say, I'm going to be 40. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to purchase an annuity that makes payments for me for five years or for 10 years. And I'm going to take this sum of money. I'm going to put it into an annuity that gives me this sum of, of payments for this period of time. That's going to be enough to satisfy the needs of this visa program, uh, depending on the paperwork that you're collecting from that visa from for that particular country's immigration program. Okay, That's a great idea. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate my, it. My pleasure. All right. We move on to, let's go to Jason in Ohio. Jason, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hello. Um, I am a engineer uh, based in Ohio. And during this pandemic, I was able to transition to a fully remote working position. And so I'm now basically location independent. Um, what I'm looking to do is to travel to different states and stay for a month or two at a time. And I'm just really confused about how I will have to do my taxes in this situation. Okay. So as far as I understand, when you're re working remotely, you're supposed to um, basically pay taxes to the state in which you are actually performing your work. So I'm just curious if you have any insight, especially since you did your road trip thing about right. how to... Um, file taxes and who I owe taxes to and how I, you know, set my location of residence and all that. Got it. Okay. Well, this is going to be one of those where I think you're, you're going to have the technical answer to follow the clear and specific letter of every law. And then you're going to have the practical answer, which is make a good faith effort to just do what is right and based upon what you're thinking. So here would be what I think the, the letter of every law would be. 
The first thing is every state that you intend to spend time in, you will need to look at that state's legislation. You'll need to do a search. So let's say you're going to go to Kentucky and spend a month in Kentucky. Then you look at it and say, uh, what does Kentucky require for me to, uh, what does Kentucky say based upon my working in their state and the taxes that are going to be associated with that? And Kentucky might say, well, Kentucky was a bad example because they don't have a a personal level. um, No, it's Tennessee that doesn't. Kentucky does have a personal income tax. So um, Kentucky might say, well, we consider somebody to be a resident of our state if they spend more than 183 days per year in our state. Well, that would be one thing. Or Kentucky might be very detailed and they might say anybody who works in the state of Kentucky for any amount of time is going to be liable for taxes generated in this particular state. I don't know what is I don't know what each state says. Every state is different. And so you can you you would have to do the 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 looking for that state. And then you would have to try to figure out, well, what does residency in that state mean? Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. California, um, probably the letter of the law, California probably taxes any kind of work that is done in California and any kind of income that's generated in California. So a number of years ago, I went to a conference when I was in Cal. I went to a conference in California. I try to avoid them, but I went to it. And I, while I was there, I made business contacts with people in California. I recorded podcasts for Radical Personal Finance in California, um, which technically is a form of, of work that I've done in California. I flew in. I was there for, I don't know, four days, five days, and then I flew out again. So the question is this, did I do work in California? I don't know, right? As far as I'm concerned, that's the the intent of the law is if I move to California and I get a job in California, then that's something other than that's when I would pay taxes. Otherwise, I'm just passing through. So I didn't file a, a tax return with the state of California. If they need to come after me, they can come after me. But I feel my conscience is clear. I'm following the, the intent of the law. So there's the letter of the law, which means search every state that you're going to spend time in, look to see what that state requires. And then I think there's the general intent of the law. And so in my opinion, if you're going to be traveling, you're going to be spending a month in Kentucky, a month in Florida, a month in Alabama, a month in Louisiana, you're just traveling through for a period of time. I would have no concerns whatsoever about needing to pay taxes to those states, needing to file tax returns. In that situation, I would just, if you're going to keep your address in Ohio, I would just keep it in Ohio and I would just say, I'm traveling through. Um, and on a state, state by state basis, I can't imagine anybody, even the most um, committed of tax commissioners for that state, I really can't imagine anybody who would have a problem with that. Okay, so I've got a little bit of a follow-up then. Mm -hmm. Uh, So obviously, Ohio has state income tax. There are states, obviously, that don't. Um, Is it a reasonable approach to try to establish residency in in a state without income tax and, and benefit from it that way? And then also, I'm curious um, about establishing residency in a state that um, does not have income tax for uh, international travel purposes. So 
curious to hear your thoughts on those two things. Depends on so the answer to that depends on how much money you're making if it's worth it. If your Ohio if your Ohio tax bill on an annual basis is six hundred and fifteen dollars, and everything is in your own is in your Ohio um, name and your Ohio address and whatnot, then it's not worth it. To save six hundred and fifteen dollars. It's a hassle to just change a whole bunch of stuff, and it's not worth it. Uh, the next thing you would look at is, well, where am I actually going to live? If I'm going to, if I own a house in Ohio and all my stuff is in Ohio, I'm just going to be traveling. Then it's hard to make the argument with a straight face that you don't live in Ohio. If that's where your house is, and that's where you spend a lot of time, and just happen to be traveling for three or four, uh, for three or four years. Now, if when you leave, you're going to go and actually travel full time, you're not going to own a house. You're going to live in your RV, or live in your car, or, or live in hotel rooms, and going to be traveling full time. Well, now it does it does matter quite a bit. And uh, so you need to look at the actual facts. In most of these planning circumstances, the key is what are the actual facts? Where, where do you live? And, and you want to answer that question honestly to yourself. And then what you do, don't play around with the details. So don't play around with trying to make it seem like you don't live there, but you actually do. Just don't live there. Um, you know, just actually genuinely don't live there. And then that's then you're you, you've you've solved the vast majority of your problems. So. Uh, so you look at that. And then the next thing you need to think about is if I move my residency, will that cause me problems with my employer? This is, I think, the biggest risk for a lot of people. You may have achieved um, permission to be able to work remotely for now, but will your company, does, did your company actually give you permission to live somewhere other than Ohio? Did your company actually give you permission to live internationally? Or do they just say you can work at home and they think you're sitting there in Cleveland? Um so if my company has just said work from home, I wouldn't want to put my job in risk by asking to, by updating my address with human resources and saying, well, now I live in Texas and here's my escapees Texas address that you need to send my, put on my, my paycheck. I wouldn't raise, I wouldn't raise those, those flags. So as long as you've thought about those practical things, the short an- the, the answer to the tax question is yes, you can move your state. You can move your state of residence from Ohio to any other state including a no income tax state. Um, if that won't, if that saves you a significant amount of money on income taxes, and if you're genuinely not going to be living in Ohio, then I think, yes, you should do that. And if you're going to go abroad and consider living outside the United States for your own personal reasons, possibly even including some measure of tax savings, then I think that it's worth it to go ahead and move your residence to another state as well. So I would, if I were in your shoes, if I'm going to spend more time out of Ohio, I just need to go back and visit Ohio. Ohio every now and then I would do that as long as it wouldn't cause me trouble with my job. Great. Um, yeah. So my residence currently is in Ohio. I don't own property. My address for HR purposes is my parents' house. So great. I think I will look into establishing residency elsewhere. Um, great. Thanks for your help. My pleasure. And uh, enjoy. It's um, it's something that is fun and that I have enjoyed, and uh, I think a lot of people should uh, should certainly mm-hmm. consider. James in Connecticut, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hi. There are two things I'd like to get your feedback on. The first is I have a, a desire to have a very simple cash flow. My outlook on personal finance is kind of to keep it simple, but I'm wondering if in my effort to have a fortress balance sheet, if I perhaps missed something obvious that's really important to support my goals of number one, 
uh, investing in my children's education and their learning projects. They're, they're young now, single digits. And then number two, cash flow in college. Those are the, the two high level goals I have. And my, my simple cash flow right now for debt, it's, you know, credit cards that are paid on a monthly basis and mortgage. And then from a savings standpoint, there's personal savings and 401k retirement. That's about it. That's, that's our very simple monthly cash flow. Um, I'm 40 and we also have in the spirit of preparing for uncertainty, we have the, the food, cash, passports, uh, various insurance, life insurance, umbrella. So, you know, at a high level, wondering if I'm, you know, geez, missing something obvious there. And then number two, kind of related, thinking about investing in my children's learning projects and their education. There's a, a number of really exciting things that I would like to do with them as they get older in the spirit of, you know, educating them and uh, specifically businesses would, would be interested to get your feedback on maybe the best way to go about um, uh, getting them into a business, helping them have the experience of creating, running, and selling a business. Because one of the our micro goals there is for each of them to, to do that two times before they go off to college. Nice. I like it. Um, so short answer is no. If you want simplicity, what you're describing is simple. And I can't see any reason why you would need to do something complex to achieve your first goal of investing in your children. If you are investing in your children by buying them books, you would simply charge those books to your credit card. And at the end of the month, you would pay off your credit card debt just like you're already accustomed to. If your way of investing into your children is to hire them a particular tutor or coach or pay for gymnastic le- gymnastics lessons, you would just simply charge that to your credit card. If your way of investing into your children is to enroll them into a summer camp or hire a special tutor that would uh, provide them with extra instruction in a unique area of interest or passion or skill that they have, then I don't see why that would have to affect your cash flow. I think the cash flow is probably more to your college question. And so what I am understanding you to be asking is, should I set up other accounts and and things like that? My answer is no. Um, What you're doing is probably fine. And the fact that you're investing in your children at an early age rather than at a later age is what I what I do and what I recommend. I think that that if you have to choose between investing in your children when they're young or saving for college, you'll get a far greater return on your money by investing in your children when they're young. So if you can spend $100 a month on books for your children to read and fill your house with books, or you can put $100 a month in a 529 account, my answer is don't put the money in the 529 account. Spend the $100 a month on books. And I think that there are only marginal benefits to saving in specific college-focused accounts. There are some benefits, but they're marginal for most people. And so if your financial plan involves, I'm going to pay down my mortgage, and by the time my eldest child is 18 years old, my mortgage is going to be paid off, thus freeing up $1,400 a month of cash flow that I could now use to spend for college tuition if I want to, I think that's a reasonable plan. With regard to business, yes, I think that that's an ideal way to do it. The only thing that's a little bit difficult for me to know how to answer is create, run, and sell. The last one, the last part of it, sell a business is difficult. 
Some businesses can be sold very easily. Many businesses, though, especially the kinds of businesses that would be most appropriate for and most easily done by a child, would just simply not be sellable businesses. Um, although maybe there could be some assets that they could create with with a line with by thinking of that. When I think about this, I do have I do have a lot of ideas. But what I think, and I, I've 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 got a, a list of those ideas, and at some point I'm going to create a new product on this particular thing of teaching children about money. And part of that is going to be um, managing money, but a lot of it is going to be about earning money. But I'll, I'll use some examples that I previously talked about publicly. Uh, I have encouraged my children to start a bread business. Now, don't think that that's anything more than them just simply making a few loaves of bread and then selling them on Sunday at a church meeting to anybody who wants to buy bread. But it's very effective. Um, you know, I, I my eldest is seven. Uh, a couple years ago, I bought him a cookbook um, put out by the the, the um, uh, the pantry people, the the great um, America's Test Kitchen. It was an America's Test Kitchen uh, cookbook for children. I handed him the cookbook and I said, "Do all the recipes in here. All the instructions are here." And um, and so he's little by little worked his way through the cookbook. But they have a really simple and easy banana bread in there and the recipe. And so I bought him the stuff and I said, "Make some loaves of banana bread and then take them to the church meeting on Sunday and sell them." And so I had him go and and create some loaves of bread. Some were just straight banana bread. Some were banana bread with walnuts. Some were banana bread with uh, walnuts and chocolate chips. And then he stood in the the church lobby with a box, uh, the church building lobby with a box, saying, "Here would." anybody like to buy banana bread and I forget how much you paid for it but you know you can a child can easily sell that for 5 bucks a piece and in this case I covered all the cost of the of the ingredients and so there's 5 bucks um, per piece and and so things like that for a child who is 7 years old there's hardly anything that you can do that's as profitable as that a child could easily make doing that could easily make 30 or 40 dollars a week 20 dollars a week 30 dollars a week 40 dollars a week and it's hard to see why a seven-year-old needs more than 20 or 30 40 dollars a week uh, that's a powerful a powerful way of making money and so but that's not a business that that's going to grow now if if my son were 13 and he were a very skilled baker would i encourage him to take it bigger yeah i'd encourage him to get regular customers i'd encourage him to canvas the neighborhood and see who wants to to buy it uh, to buy from him regularly and and things could grow if i had a child who was a very good cook, I would encourage him to do something better, maybe bigger. Maybe we would go ahead and start setting up, um, we would buy a table at the local green market and sell foods at the local green market. Maybe we would set up some kind of food truck or portable thing, and we would start going and doing barbecue at weekend events, weekend fairs. Uh, and so things can get bigger. But most of the time, you're not dealing with anything that would sell. You're dealing with those kinds of service businesses. And so I think one big benefit for a child, though, is not to get too focused on any one thing, but to have exposure to a variety of different scenario, different industries, uh, different types of jobs, different types of businesses. So in my mindset with a young, you know, my eldest is seven, I'm looking at it and saying, I'm not going to try to say, I have to tell my seven-year-old, you have to do this for the next 10 years to build a big business so you're rich at 17. I just want them to get, I want him to get a taste of a lot of different things that he can do, a lot of different ways that he could go, and I want him to have some, some useful skills that he could use on the side if he ever needed to, even just for cash money. I'll give you one, one other example. Something like um, doing balloon animals. 
um, balloon animals, some, somebody with the ability and skills of doing balloon animals can make a lot of money just going to things like fairs and performing at fairs and, and special events. I think that's the kind of thing that if if you if you have your child develop the skill of doing balloon animals, there are people who adults who make a full time living doing balloon creations and selling forty thousand dollars worth of balloons to to decorate for conferences. I wouldn't push them in that direction, but as far as a, a a little skill that can be done, if they have the ability to go to a street fair. Uh, Fourth of July fair or a Labor Day thing or a special uh, street fair in town, uh, a special kids event for the local Italian heritage thing, and they can just walk around the streets and make a few hundred bucks of pocket money. That compared to what most teenagers are doing is a very, very profitable use of their time. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of those kinds of things that I would look at. Now, I've got some other businesses that I think would kind of uh, work in terms of things you could could sell, but I want to keep a little bit of that uh, private until I put that into my um, information product that I'm going to develop on this. Uh, so I just wouldn't worry too much about the selling the business uh, unless that that unless you they were interested in a kind of business that that actually fit for. I think there's more value in just teaching them to create it and then run it. And I would and I believe that those are actually the fundamental skills of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur who's really good figures out how to move fast and they have an idea and they say, hey, here's an idea for a business and they make it and they make it fast. They don't make it awesome. They make it fast. And then they take it to the market and see what happens. And so to me, far more important than selling a business is the skill of knowing that I can create businesses fast and that it doesn't take it doesn't take that much to do it. I want to do balloon animals? Great. Let's go to YouTube, um, buy some balloons, figure out where to get some stuff, practice, and then next weekend I'm going out. Uh, so what if I only know three animals? That's okay. That's enough. People will buy the three animals and I'll make a hundred bucks. I don't need to engage in this long run thing of I'm going to go print business cards and do all this stuff that people do. Get money in by creating a business and do it fast. That to me is a more important lesson than learning how to sell a business. Yeah, good feedback. Good examples. Um, I think that makes sense. And I, I expect you're right. As as you try different things and as you see what really interests them, then you can scale that up and almost use a building block approach. Yeah, I think so. So good for you, in my opinion, good for you for staying and doing what you're doing to um, to help them. Because to me, if you can do that, then the whole college thing really just becomes so much simpler. Matt in Virginia, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, Matt? Hey, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for all you do. Uh, I, I love how deliberate you are with all of your uh, thought processes. And, uh, you know, I've recommended you to several friends. So I got a, I got a quick question for you. Um, have you ever considered biblically responsible investing? And if so, what was the conclusion that you came to? Yes, I have considered it. And I personally believe that it is important uh, it is very important um, to pursue biblically responsible investing for those who are going to um, commit their lives to living in a pattern that would please God based upon what is revealed in Scripture. Um, usually what what pe- when people use the words biblically responsible investing, though, they're often referring to uh, a mutual fund family or something like that that is that is trying to commercialize it. Um, I don't push this publicly because I believe that this is an area of conscience, not a not an area of where, where I would seek to control someone else. But but a number of years ago, I sold out of 
large mass market um I don't own index funds. I sold out of all of my large mass market mutual funds that I used to, to own and that I used to sell for a living because for, for a couple of reasons, but a primary one was based upon an ethical dilemma is that many of these companies are involved in businesses that I don't believe are honoring to God. And many of these companies are involved in corporate practices that I don't believe are honoring to God. And it became difficult for me to imagine myself standing in front of Jesus Christ and him asking me for an account of how I've lived my life and how I've invested the money that he entrusted to me. And then for me to say to him, look, Lord, you know, I invested this money, I got 8%, and I invested it into this this business that was over here um, systematically working to dismantle your kingdom and putting all of its corporate energy into dismantling your kingdom and producing these products that don't help people, that don't serve society, that aren't um, useful to, to that, that don't you know, express love of neighbor, but are rather designed to, you know, to kill people, to harm people, to destroy people's souls. I came to the point where I couldn't do that anymore. Now, replacing that has been far more difficult than I ever imagined it was going to be, which is one another reason why, although I'm, I'm happy to, to admit it um, to anybody who asks, it's, it's really hard to say, hey, here's what you should do. And I think that this is the, one of the plights of Christians in 2020, as Christians try to figure out, what do I do? So let me sketch out what I understand to be kind of the cultural arc. The United States was founded in, a, in an environment that was suffused with Christian thought. Um, even the most skeptical of the early Christian framers, even the most skeptical of those framers were had all of their thinking shaped by Christian thought. And so Christians in the United States for the last 200 and something years have had a pretty easy go of it. Now, there has never been an extraordinarily high um, identification of, of you know, Christian identity or of church going, et cetera, in the American culture. But for the majority of the American uh, experience, the culture shapers were at least nominally Christian. You had the classic, you know, the mainstream, um, the mainstream Christian, uh, the mainstream church, mainstream denominations of mainstream Protestantism um, were very influential. Catholicism very influential in other places. Um, evangelical Christianity very influential in some regions. And so, even today, uh, people, atheists are wildly underrepresented in political circles. But what's happened most keenly in the last forty to fifty years has been that Christianity has lost its cultural power in the United States. And so if you were to go back to 50, 60 years ago, then you know entertainment was not um, it was it, it may not have been explicitly Christian, but it wasn't intentionally offensive to Christians because an entertainment uh, offering didn't it wouldn't have succeeded if it were explicitly offensive to Christians. What has happened though is that situation has dramatically changed. And while the United States of America is still intensely a Christian nation related to the population statistics, the cultural shapers, the cultural influences are no longer Christian. And so what's happened is that many Christians in the United States find themselves in in a in a looking at the world from a minority mindset they're not a minority 
from a demographic standpoint, but they are a minority in certain in certain places, most importantly in the cultural spheres, and then increasingly in the political spheres. And so what this is forcing on American Christians, as I see it, is it's forcing American Christians to go through and and deal with things that they've never dealt with, think about things that they've never thought about, and and wrestle with things ethically that they've never had to wrestle with. Um, 30 years ago, if you were going to say, what is cult- what is Christian re- investing in the United States? You would have had to say, well, should I invest in a comp- company that um, is involved in war machines? You know, should I invest in Northrop Grumman that's making all of these big planes that are being sold to the military? Should I invest in an arms manufacturer? Should I invest in a- an alcohol manufacturer? Should I invest in a tobacco company? Uh, and so those things were were in some ways simpler. Today, though, now Christians have to not only deal with those very important issues, they also now have to deal with corporate identity. And they didn't used to have to look at Coca-Cola and say, okay, Coca-Cola makes soft drinks, and let's just assume people like drinking soft drinks. But Coca-Cola is not specifically trying to create advertising on a global basis that is fundamentally different than my beliefs. Well, now you do, and that's every company in the Fortune 500, um, practically speaking. And so Christians haven't yet developed a new a new way of, of thinking through this. And this shouldn't be too much of a surprise, right? You could imagine this. Let's go back to another example example. If you were to go back to an era like the, in the 1970s, when Roe versus Wade was passed in the United States, at that time, there was a very um, limited opposition among American Christians to abortion. Um, there was It was very limited. It wasn't non-existent, but it was very limited. Why? Well, it was because Christians had not really thought through the issues. They had not thought through them in detail. They had not looked through them. They had not developed um, robust philosophy around the issue, and they had not come to accept them um, in the same in the way that they should have. They were caught blind, you know, kind of blinded to it. Well, fast forward to 2020, and you what you see is that over the last 40 years, that has dramatically changed. Where the entire landscape now on that particular moral question, ethical question, is utterly and completely transformed. The Christians thought through the issues, they 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 argued through them, they wrote through them, they developed um, lines of ethical and moral reasoning, and then over the course of the last 40 years, that has been systematically taught and established in Christian communities to where there's a very broad consensus on what is an appropriate way to reason through that. Where that has not happened is in this in this area of what we're talking about with finances. It's not happened where people have gone and, and said this. If you go into the average church and ask the average pastor, well, pastor, talk to me about biblically responsible investing. Very few of them can do it, um, and I used to work. I used to have pastors as clients, and 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 there would be there's very little difference between pastoral funds, um, you know, the way that the pastors' retirement accounts are invested versus other places. So what's happened in the last few years, though, is that Christians are starting to wake up. They're starting to pay attention. You see this with arguments over. Um, you see this with arguments over buying. What companies do you support? What companies do you know, bo- do you boycott? You see this over. It, it will be, and in the next decade, it will be an area of 
uh, of trying to say, well, how do we invest our money? And I think that you're going to see some of these Christian co- investment companies that are clearly and publicly saying, we do work in this certain way, um, we do this, um, we do work in this certain way, and we offer these certain products. I think you're going to see that start to become bigger and bigger to where 10 years from now, um, in the same way as an example of what happened with abortion, you'll see in Christian circles, 10 years from now, a much greater awareness of this conversation, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, so I think expect it to happen, and I think this is happening in a number of different spheres as as Christians in the United States try to deal with what is it, how do you live when you've lost your cultural power? How do you stay faithful when you move from a place of dominant majority to a place of... of um, not a minority, but a, a place of a less dominant group. I don't know exactly what, what words to use, but how do, you, how do you live faithfully in that circumstance? And other cultures from other places in the world, they've, they've already walked through that, right? They have many lessons to share with American Christians, but at the moment, on this particular issue, there's not a lot of developed thought, there aren't a lot of developed solutions, and it's a real area where you're going to see massive change in the next decade or two, in my opinion. All right. Well, thanks. I, I certainly appreciate, you know, just a quick Google search. I can pull up like Timothy funds and, you know, Ave Maria is a, is a Catholic fund. And, there, you know, there seem to be some others that might align. I didn't know if you'd ever done that or come to a conclusion that maybe these semi-mainstream but uh, Christian-leaning organizations were, you know, would, would scratch that itch for you or not. But yeah. uh, I'll, I'll continue to look at it. Thank I, you. I'm not opposed to any of these. I've thought about interviewing them. My, only, my always fear is my brain works comprehensively. And so I almost feel like if I'm going to go out and I'm going to invite somebody from the Timothy Funds here, well, I can't do that unfairly. Like I need to go and invite all eight companies that are doing this, and I need to interview all, and I got to do this exhaustive due diligence, and it makes me, and because I know that oh, that's going to be you know, 200 hours of work for me, I just I, I kind of shy away from it. And so what I could do and should do is probably provide more cursory discussion as a way of exposing people to it, but I often... I shy from that. I think that these funds are a very good solution. And I think that if you find a, because, because investing outside of the mainstream context, when, when, when most of our money is held in qualified accounts, our 401ks, et cetera, the vast majority of people can't, won't, and shouldn't just take that out and say, well, that's it. I'm going to go and do something else. Um, they can't, won't, and shouldn't do that. And so a solution where you have a quality company that says, this is what we personally believe um, is, and here are the funds that we offer, and here are the ethical things that we want to do, and so we'll help invest in those companies. I think that that's something that that should grow, can grow, and that you should consider. And so you can research those companies, and if one of them s- speaks to you as far as this is a company that I agree, then I should go with you should go with that. Now, the interesting question that I'll leave you with that I don't know the answer to is I often ask myself this. Should a biblically responsible investing fund outperform or underperform its peers? And that, to me, is a very interesting question. On the one hand, you would make the argument and say, well, it may underperform its its peers. Uh, The first challenge will be that I'm going to move into an active management scenario. So this fund is going to have more expenses. And this fund is choosing from the same publicly traded companies generally that many other funds are. So I'm I'm moving, I'm automatically moving myself uh, into a more expensive proposition. And so there's going to be some kind of underperformance. But the bigger question is, what 
what has God ordained in the universe with regard to the long-term success of companies that behave in certain ways? And does has God actually ordained that the, in the end the wicked will triumph? Or has God ordained that the righteous will triumph? And I think a lot about that. I think it's a really fascinating thing to think about. And if there is a somebody who is, um, if there is somebody who is, put is doing research, doing a you know a theology degree, or writing a, a paper, this would be a, a very interesting scenario that I would love to see more analysis done on. Uh, and I think it would be really interesting to have somebody put themselves in a in a um, in a scenario of what do we see over the long term in terms of actual Christian you know what 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 companies do uh, I teach my children right even as um, uh, even as Psalms chapter one does right my children I have them memorize Psalms chapter one and so if you think about what Psalms one says um, uh, it's hard for me to quote sometimes when I have the address. Let me just read it to you. So think about what this says in a, in a financial standpoint. Um, there we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But if we believe that God has said that those who are righteous, those who meditate on the law of the Lord, and what I think is rather obvious in that context, to apply the law of the Lord, that they will prosper. They are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that those people do, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So, do you? So, is there a, an, a higher overperformance in time of investing in a company that is engaging in righteous commerce rather than unrighteous commerce? In a company that treats people properly and appropriately versus improperly? And to me, that is a fascinating thing to look at that I would love to study more um, in the long term. So um, may you find good solutions in the days to come. All right, move to Trey in Texas. Trey, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I wanted to ask you, I've got some savings set aside to to purchase property with in the future, um, probably in the next three to five years. And I was happy with just keeping it in cash. It's about $200,000, and I'm adding about six or 7000 a month. Um, But... You know, when I when I kind of run the run the numbers, if I'm if I'm going to buy something in five years, say three to five years, it would be nice to have a little bit of growth on that cash as a, as opposed to sort of eroding with inflation. So, wondered if you had any ideas for where to park that kind of money short term. It's okay if you know if I want to buy something in three years and I end up having to wait five because it's because the market's down or something. Thought about using like a target retirement fund for 2025 so that it would kind of have that appropriate mix. But wanted to hear what you thought. Yeah, I think there's four things that you would consider. Number one would be a savings account. Number two would be CDs or a CD ladder. 
Number three would be a money market account. Or number four would be T-bills. Uh, you could set up an account. When you start to get up in those numbers, you can set up an account with Treasury Direct and and um, just direct invest directly into T-bills. I think all four of those would be appropriate solutions. Uh, if you're in the five year, in, if you're in the five year timeline, then I don't think, generally speaking, I don't think safely you can look at other kinds of investments. Uh, and so I would just simply eat the eat the opportunity cost of an investment in favor of being ready to go when I see the type of property that I that I look at that I. I'm ready for, but I would I would probably do with two hundred thousand. I would probably do some form of CD ladder, um, and try to stretch some of those CDs out to a little bit longer term to get a little bit more return. But we're living in a world where it's hard to get return on on cash, and th- there's not a great solution that I know of. Gotcha. Yeah, that's helpful. So um, I, I had one other question, sort of related. I've got. Uh, all of our retirement savings, which is about another couple hundred grand um, in index funds, and they're all S&P 500. And I just wanted to know what you thought about, uh, I've, I've heard people saying that the S&P 500 is a little bit overbought, and most index funds are a little overbought. And I started looking at the PE ratio of the funds I'm in, and they're like in the 30s. So I mean, do you think index funds, I, I know we just talked about biblically responsible investing, but I've got a lot of index funds right now and I haven't even started to grapple with what you guys are just talking about. Do you think that they're <laughs> still a reasonable place to park money financially? comes down to what's the alternative, right? If you, if you sold the index funds, what would you invest in? Yeah, it'd probably have to be an actively managed mutual fund of some kind. So we're, we're all stuck in this world where when you try to, and that's where, always where you have to look at. Even when you're hearing a commentator say, well, the, the, the PE ratio is out of whack. The answer is, the, the, the question is, okay, well, what do I invest in instead? Um, I certainly have concerns uh, about the value of you know, stocks. Uh, I certainly have concerns about the value of real estate. We all do, right? Any, any, anytime you have your money invested, you're going to have concerns about something. And here's what I, where I look at. Uh, what should be the proper price-to-earnings ratio of investment? Now, some people will answer that, well, it should be X number. And I think it's worthwhile to consider those things. Historical analysis is important to keep in mind where you look and say, oh, look, the, the price-to-earnings ratio is different on a historical basis than this. But on the flip side, you look at it and say, well, well, how do we know what the absolute number should be? We're not dealing here in a world of mathematical precision where we know exactly what it should be. Uh, and I think that if you look at index funds, for example, what, what, what do you see? Well, I think, and I would, love, I would love it if I had some numbers at my fingertips to prove this. This is my impression, but not backed up by individual data. So maybe I'm wrong, but this is my impression. I think today you have far more people participating in stock investing than it ever before in American history and in global history. Um, never before has stock investing been so so widely available to people and never before in history has there been a scenario in which so many people were, were participating. If you go back historically, go back, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years, the average, only, the, only the very rich actually owned stocks. Stocks were a, a rich man's game. 
the average person never owned a stock. They would buy a house. They would own a piece of land. Um, if there was any kind of long-term investments, usually that would be where you used to have um, guaranteed benefit pension funds managed by professional investors. And But the average person didn't own stocks at all. Whereas today, the average person does own stocks through their 401k, through some form, generally, of a mutual fund. And so this is making, this is, as I see it, this is fundamentally new. This is, a, this is fundamentally new in terms of the impact on the average person. You have now more people who are not professional investors uh, buying and selling based upon their own their own their own reasons. Uh, everything from people buying and selling individual stocks from their smartphone app to buying and selling in their 401k. Uh, stocks and the stock market is a much bigger impact on the society at large. Uh, you know, people, a politician needs the stock market to be high uh, because then that makes people feel wealthy. And when people feel wealthy because their 401k values are high, then all of a sudden now they go out and they spend money confidently. And the spending money becomes a fulfilling prophecy because in a consumer-oriented culture, now profits go up and then stock prices are high. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so my point with that example is that I believe that that we're in a new era where it's valuable to look at historic considerations, but just because you tell me the historic price-to-earnings ratio was X and the current price-to-earnings ratio is Y, I'm not convinced that that tells me all that much without some other story, without some other philosophy, some other theory to persuade me. So since I don't know how to resolve that, I come down to what can I do? And for most of us, the stock market is probably the best investment that we have. Why? Well, you have profitable companies that are professionally managed that are making money. You have a very efficient, high-quality market with um, in the United States market with pretty decent transparency, pretty decent regulation. You have professional investors scrutinizing the market at all times. You have companies that are working very, very hard to make to make money. It's hard to believe that the average person could do any better with their money than simply trusting it to that highly productive market. But I don't know of any professional investor, though, who believes that the market returns in the next couple of decades are going to be as high as the market returns in the last couple of decades because of some of these other pressures that that, that we're talking about. So I would not encourage someone to take their, mar- their money out of the market and t- sell their index funds unless they have a better option. If you have a better option, Better option could be, I want to pay off my high interest credit card debt. Better option could be, my neighbor's dad died and I have the chance to buy this property at a 40% discount and I think that this side of town is growing because I think this is a really good scenario. Better option is, you know, I've been looking at the the markets in South v, South Southeast Asia. And I think that there's so much growth potential there that I've connected with a local person who's going to hook me up and we're going to start buying Southeast Asian. I, I don't know, right? But if you have a better option, then certainly you should do that. I'm, and this is, I am not at all married to the concept of buying index funds, but you have to have something that you think is better. Otherwise, stay put. Got it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, we move on to we've got three callers left. We'll move on to Alex in Massachusetts. Alex, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey there, Joshua. Great to talk with you. Um, yeah, I have a question about podcasting, actually. Okay, let's do it. All right. So, as an experienced 
financial podcaster for several years. Um, so I'm a podcaster as well in the financial space. And I'm just wondering, you know, over the years you shared some of the lessons you've learned um, about your show and your platform and talking about the things that you do. Do you have any advice or insights regarding, you know, things just seem to be changing really quickly? Um, do you see any trends or predictions uh, in the coming years of, as far as like creating media, specifically in the finance and investing realm and how to connect with others through that medium? I do. Uh, speaking kind of just rapid fire with a few big ones. Number one, if I were starting over again today, I would not do exclusively podcasting. I think that if you have the ability to do podcasting, um, then that that's good, but I would not do exclusively podcasting. I think that video is growing far faster than podcasting, both from the perspective of um, social reasons in terms of of you know what people do and how that what they like and i think number 2 even just with regard to the technology platforms right now if you start a podcast today in an audio podcast exclusively in 2020 you uh, what who's promoting you well you've got spotify iheartradio you've got apple podcasts but people aren't generally promoting you in those in those bases. You can be listed there. But if you start video and now all of a sudden you've got Facebook pushing your video, you've got YouTube pushing your video and recommending it, you're going to get a lot more recommendation. So I think that video is a more powerful platform right now than podcasting is. Video also um, is is has the potential to make big progress, to go viral. The downside of podcasting, I've never had one of my podcast episodes go viral. Never once. And it's, it's easy to imagine why, right? You say, or the previous caller was, was very kind and said, hey, I've recommended your podcast to other people, which I greatly appreciate. That's how most people find out about radical personal finance. But when somebody does that, how do you do it? Well, if you share a link on Twitter, you share a link on Facebook and say, here's Joshua's podcast, and right now, as things stand, we're an hour and 23 minutes in, and you're just like, man, this is the best podcast in the world, nobody nobody clicks on that link on Facebook and gets an hour and 23 minutes in, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this podcast really is great. No, no, it doesn't happen. Um, if it's more than 20 seconds in, it doesn't work, and so I try to keep the show fast, and my intro is, on most days, 20, 12 seconds, but still it just it, it doesn't it doesn't happen and so podcasts don't go viral you don't get any of that 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 internet juice to help something go viral um so it's hard to grow a podcast for that reason the kind of people who you know let's say that trey again the previous caller is recommending my show he needs to have somebody who is a podcast listener who has time to listen to podcasts who's interested in finances and then that person if they find my show there's a high proportion of people who fit that demographic who love my show, but but that's a small subset of the total number of people that are out there. And so if I were starting over in 2020, I would not do exclusively audio podcasting. Where audio podcasting massively outshines 
any other format is the amount of connection, the deep level of connection that you have with your listeners. It massively outshines any other format with regard to the amount of information that you can convey to somebody in a very efficient way with the, with the level that you can teach. And so I love audio podcasting, but with regard to growth, trying to grow, it's very, very limited. So in a perfect world, if you have the ability and the resources, in a perfect world, You want to take your audio podcast and view that as only one part of your overall media platform. You want to have some very short videos. So think about Joe Rogan, okay? The king of audio podcasting in the current world. You have Joe Rogan's audio podcast. You also have Joe Rogan's video podcast. Both of them are very popular. But then what do they do? Well, they take clips from the Joe Rogan experience and they put a 12-minute clip, a 10-minute clip, and then there are two-minute clips. And so his team and other people for him take his content, they mix it out, and they create a two-minute animated clip. And so those are the kinds of things that go viral. Those are the kinds of things that get the internet juice that leads back to the promotion. And so he has his his long-form podcast, audio and video podcast, as a, as a primary offering but is promoted by everything else and so to me that's that's what it should have been that's what you should do one of the biggest mistakes that i've made over the years is by focusing on being prolific with regard to content and not prolific with regard to taking the same content and mixing it up and i did this because it was what i wanted to do that was what i want that was what i liked that was what i wanted to do um in hindsight it was the wrong decision uh and specifically i know i mean Somebody told me years ago uh, on the show, I could tell you exactly who it was, but I was interviewing and they were like, why are you spending so much time at the time I was creating five episodes a week? Why are you spending so much time creating five episodes a week and not taking one at making one episode a week and then you know, chopping it up into different pieces and promoting it on five different platforms? They were right. I was wrong. So that would be kind of the the foundation is that I don't think that audio podcasting is good for a, a an exclusive um approach in today's world, I think that it should just simply be one piece of the media mix. That said, I think that um, quality always will rise to the top. And what's frustrating to people now, uh, starting a podcast, building a podcast, etc., is there are so many better options. But I think quality will always rise to the top and you can still grow something if you have those other components and if you have a certain message and a certain um, in a certain focus I would use the example of um, choose Phi right in the in the financial space um, a number of years ago I was at uh, one of the financial independence retreats in Gainesville and I interviewed um, Brad and um, What's his name? Uh, the guys who started Choose Fi. I interviewed them on Radical Personal Finance, and at the time, they at the time they uh, their show was was it was it was not popular. They were just starting it, and so I, I wanted to help them. Right? I thought, okay, this is great. This is, got a, this is a good a good thing. And so I interviewed them on Radical Personal Finance, and it was it was kind of very much at that time uh, a larger show, a larger podcast kind of reaching out and helping uh, a smaller show that's just getting started. Well, they hit the trend in a stunningly amazing way. And their growth figures were 
absolutely huge in in terms of that. Whereas today, their show, Choose Spy, is way, is un, I don't know how much big, I don't know, but it's way, 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 way bigger than Radical Personal Finance is. And their entire platform is much, 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 much bigger in than Radical Personal Finance is. And they've done a tremendous job with it. So why did they get, why did they get so much, like, why did it work? Well, number one, everything, they, they got the timing right across the board. Number one, um, podcasting, was in that massive growth curve that it's I think it's still in, but it was in that massive growth curve where it, it has become mainstream. That was thing number one. Number two is that the concepts relating to financial independence were also in this massive growth curve where in the marketplace they had existed and have existed for a very long time, but the publication of them, the publicity of them made a massive growth curve. Think back to you've had long-time financial independence writers and whatnot, but then you have somebody who popularized it more than anybody else in the personal finance space would be Mr. Money Mustache. You have this magical dream of, hey, I retired when I was 33 years old before I had my first kid, and I did it, and you can do it too. Then you have, he's he's an amazing writer, just this great attitude and and you know writing it from a voice that's cool um, you don't have to give up anything you can still live this awesome life you can live in a really great place you can drink craft beer you can make all this cool stuff just this, like th- th- these these expressing these values of the modern era and then you had that blog go grow 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 and then you had this deluge starting about what at this point three, four years ago, deluge of broad scale media articles where you you had this trend growing and growing and growing. And so what a, a platform like Choose Fi did is they hit that trend perfectly. It wasn't a new thing. It was an established thing, but it was something that was looking for more, um, more uh, interest. And so then they built a platform on it and then have, have proceeded to service that platform with all of the relevant types of media content. So yes, the podcast was the foundation, but the podcast is well done and there's much more tightly focused and it was tightly focused in a cultural um, a cultural milieu that is is widely accessible. And so you can track that and you can see, oh, I see why this is happening. So my advice to somebody is that you want to be to the extent possible if you're trying to grow something large it's important to tap into an existing trend and then try to create try to bring something to the market that's better in that trend that's more that's better marketed that's more tightly packaged to serve that trend and then in that scenario then you can do it with a podcast because you're getting the the tail effect. You're drafting on the trend, and people are going and looking for the podcast. And so you have this trend of financial independence. People go and look for financial independence, and oh, look, here's this awesome podcast. It's exclusively around financial independence, which is a powerful concept, and 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 you see the growth that comes from it. So podcasting is not dead, uh, but those are my two big things that I think need to be grappled with effectively. You have to have a high-quality product, uh, has to be the right time in the marketplace, and then you have to figure out how do I promote this product effectively if it's going to grow significantly. Mm, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I actually found Choose Fi years ago because of your interview oh, with nice. them. Nice. <laughs> and um, I've been watching them closely. And then, of course, I've started my own show. And um, yeah, I think that that promotion piece is, is just something that um, I'm trying to build build more skills in. Because uh, really, I, I kind of followed your example, Joshua. I mean, I saw how prolific you were and still are um, and, and kind of 
have been trying to do that. I'm about 150 episodes in at this point. What's the name of your show? I, I, it's called Stock Stories. Stock Stories. Um, and what are you mainly talking stories. about? I talk about, I committed to doing 500 episodes at least where I go through the entire S&P 500 and um, an episode for each company. Nice. And then I also talk about mental models. Very cool. I love both, both. I love the concept. Um, I think it's a really cool concept. Um, my only comment would be that I think that something like that is going to be, so this is Stock Stories, Case Studies and Mental Models for Individual Investors by Alex Mason. Um I love it. Um, I think the biggest challenge of that particular niche is that you have a, I don't know, it's just that it's gonna, the, the interest is going to be smaller in terms of the, the audience, the potential audience is, is automatically smaller. So if I'm building off of what you've, what you've described here, um, where you're talking about the, the stock market and you're talking about individual companies, that's by definition a much smaller audience, potential audience than something more general like financial independence. And especially in today's world where the almost unanimous advice from virtually every sector of the marketplace, every sector of the financial advice space is don't invest in individual stocks then it's just you have to build the model with a different expectation uh, because I think that's your biggest headwinds, right? Every financial advisor, what do they say? Don't invest in financial in, in individual stocks. Every book, you know, if you go to the personal finance section of the bookstore, 95% of the books are going to say don't invest in individual stocks. 5% are going to be here's how you can invest in individual stocks. You've got massive audiences for, um, you know, choose Fi or, or, or other financial podcasts uh, and bloggers. I mean, I'm probably the most friendly towards individual stock investing uh, of most of most large podcasts, and yet still, uh, it's not something that's an area of contact of focus. And so, I think that that kind of thing is just going to make for a different model. For really, and, and that's not bad, right? You can make a living. You can build really well on smaller. Uh, on smaller platforms, you just have to look at it with a different perspective than than. You can't look at Joe Rogan and say, "Hey, Joe Rogan's podcast is is has gazillions of listeners, but my podcast about the Upper East Side of of uh, you know Poughkeepsie, Illinois, my podcast, my local podcast of the Upper East Side of Poughkeepsie, Illinois, is is, is someday going to be as big as Joe Rogan's? It's 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 clearly, obviously, not ever going to be that. And so that's how I would how I would look at. It. I would say, okay, my podcast can be if very uh, successful, I can have some great listeners. It's just not going to be the kind of general attraction podcast that um, choose that a big you know personal finance podcast is. But but that's okay. You may still like it, right? So I'm I'm although I have sometimes like I I, I do struggle with jealousy sometimes of big platforms. It's very easy for me to feel those 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 feelings when I think about doing it 
the way that other people do it, I wouldn't want it. I would never, I would not create the kind of stuff that is is often the most appealing from a mainstream perspective because I wouldn't enjoy the process. I would rather go back and be a financial advisor than do that. And so what I always look at is I say, do I like my business? And if I like my business, then I can just be happy for other people having good success with their business. I don't need to worry about them. Just focus on my business, mind my own business, and make sure that I like my business. So... Um, Anyway, those are my thoughts. So stock stories, case studies, and mental models for individual investors with Alex Mason. Everybody go and subscribe uh, Subscribe now. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate that and, and appreciate all the advice. Thanks a, lot for, of, a lot of good things to think about. Thanks for calling in. I really appreciate it. All right. Two callers, and we go now to Peter in New York. Peter, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hi, Joshua. A quick um, uh, tax question. Um I've got my, my regular, you know, W-2 job, and then I've got some stuff on the side. As far as the uh, tax situation for my, my side hustle, um, I just run it through my, you know, my personal return. Um, I'm just curious about the pros and cons of, of maybe putting it into some other type of, of structure as opposed to just running to my individual return. So, and when you say running to an individual return, let me define that. That means you file a Schedule C each year, you report the income that you have associated with your side hustle, and then you deduct the expenses that are associated with it, right? Um, basically, there, there are almost no expenses. It's basically just pure consulting for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so all of those, all that 1099 income gets, uh, gets reported on my main return. Right. But it gets, returned, it gets reported on a Schedule C for your consulting business. Uh, that's a good question that I don't think I can answer. Okay. I'm 99% sure that that's what you're doing yeah. uh, because that's what any, any, any tax advisor would recommend. I just wanted to clarify and, and, and it's an important clarification. So, um, the first thing that you, my notes, so I get this, uh, in a appropriate way. Um, okay. So the first thing that you look at, any person in the United States of America can start any business at any time. There's no need for paperwork. There's no need for registration. There's no need for DBA. There's no need for bank accounts, etc. You can make money doing anything that people will give you money for. And then at the end of the year, you simply report that income on what's called a Schedule C. It's a personal return of profit and loss from a personal business. And so if you have income in 2020, you fill out a Schedule C for your business, and then you file that with your taxes. If you don't have any income in 2021, then you just simply don't file a Schedule C. And then if you have income from that business or any other business in 2022, you file a Schedule C. And so this is one great way that makes it simple for you to start and close businesses at any point in time. And there's no real limit as to the kind of business that can run on that. You can do a million dollar a year consulting income on a Schedule C, just like you can with any kind of corporation. There's no fundamental reason why you can't report massive amounts of income on a Schedule C. So it's a it's a myth that Schedule C um, personal you know personal services corp no sorry let me not use a corporation just simply providing services and reporting them on schedule C there's no limit as to how big you can you can do that it can be done at any point in time you don't have to be a certain size or a certain not size usually the first thing that in a highly litigious society like the United States that we look at as to a reason why you wouldn't use a schedule C has to do with liability protection 
if you are engaging in a business as an individual, and if your business becomes liable for some wrong that you've committed to someone else, and someone sues you, now all of your personal assets are now available to the claims of the creditor. You don't have any form of liability protection uh, for uh, for with with a Schedule C business. Um, so everything that you own is available to the creditor. That may or may not be a problem, but if most advisors, most legal advisors, most business advisors will encourage you to set up a, a company, an LLC, a corporation uh, of some kind in order to uh, in order to protect yourself from that liability. And I think that's reasonable in many situations. The second reason why people will encourage you to not uh, file as a Schedule C, but rather to set up some kind of corporation, has to do with the ability to possibly save on uh, employment taxes by using the S-corporation election, where you pay dividends to yourself instead of a straight salary. So if you are running a business as a Schedule C um, as a Schedule C, and you earn $100,000, you're going to pay profit. You have a $100,000 profit. You're going to pay 15.3% of that as self-employment taxes, which is a total bill of $15,300. If you can, following the law and the guidance of the IRS, if you can move that business into a an S-corporation, um, paying taxes as a separate entity, not only do you gain the liability protection previously discussed, but now you have the opportunity to pay yourself a $50,000 salary and possibly pay yourself $50,000 of dividends. And that would cut your self-employment taxes by 50%, thus saving you a total of $7,650 of employment taxes. So that's those are the compelling reasons to move from a Schedule C to um, something else. However, what do you give up with that? Well, you give up a few important things. Number one, you gain more complexity. Now you have to deal with keeping business books. If you're going to have a, a corporation, you have to deal with keeping business books and records. If you don't have business books and records probably up to, properly up to date and actually handle everything, you probably don't get any liability corporation from the corporation if you're sitting in front of the judge. The judge says, hey, buddy, this is just your alter ego. You've been saying this is a corporation, but you haven't proved it to me. And so we're just going to ignore the fact that corporation. This is you, right? You're you're doing business as a company, but this is just simply you. Um, you give up um, some. Uh, you give up some. So you give up some ease. You give up some tax deductions. One of the big kind of understated benefits, I think, of a of a sole proprietorship that reports on a Schedule C is that losses incurred in the course of a business that's operating as a sole proprietorship are fully deductible against your other sources of income. So let's say you have a business that you're going to run as a sole proprietorship, and you expect in year one to have a $20,000 loss, year two, a $20,000 loss, and then in year three, a $60,000 profit. Well, in year one, if you have $100,000 of earned income from your day job, but a $20,000 loss from your from your your business, your sole proprietorship, you can deduct that $20,000 against $100,000 from your day job. And that reduces your total taxable income down from $100 to $80,000. That can be powerful because when you have a corporation, you can only deduct your losses subject to the basis in that corporation. And so that's a really, really powerful, a powerful thing. Uh, in addition, on the liability perspective, in my opinion, a lot of times 
the liability exposure that a lot of people have is often oversold, where you often, if you're a consultant, you're an independent consultant, and you're just simply traveling yourself, you don't have employees, you don't have facilities, you don't have premises, you don't have products, you just simply have you and your advice, a lot of times you don't have that much liability. And then you have to ask the question of, if I do have liability, how much of it is personal liability versus professional, sorry, how much of it is professional liability versus liability of the business? When I was a financial advisor, if I ran my business through a corporation, but then gave bad financial advice that was the kind of financial advice that was so egregiously bad, or if I committed fraud and I, I, I defrauded one of my clients, the fact that I ran my financial advisory firm through a corporation didn't give me any liability protection because my liability was professional liability, not um, not business liability. And so I didn't have any any limitation against professional liability due to the entity, just like a doctor doesn't have any any limited liability protection from their um, their corporation for mistakes made that are medical mistakes. The doctor is personally professionally liable for that. It can't be hidden behind the uh, behind the um uh behind the, the shelter of the, the corporation. Finally, if you have a W-2 income and you're already maxing out the Social Security wage base, and I'm 97% sure of it, but there's just something in the back of my mind saying, is this really true? But I'm pretty pretty sure about it, but I'll check after, actually, when I finish recording, make sure I get this right. But let's say you're earning $150,000 from your day job, and then you are also earning uh, $100,000 on the side. Well, you don't gain any of the tax benefits from the you don't gain many of the tax benefits from your from your side hustle being in a corporation because you're already maxing out the social security wage base with your day job. And so now the tax savings of moving into a corporation just really don't become all that valuable. So um, I would say that in general, for a sideline consulting income, unless you have some significant liability exposure that you can point to, I would just run it as a sole proprietorship uh, file taxes as a Schedule C and move on with my life and not worry about the corp- the hassles of building and maintaining a corporate identity. Uh, the key is, do you have liability exposure and what's the tax planning perspective? But from what you're saying, probably just stick with a sole proprietorship. Sounds good. All right. Question answered? I think so. Good. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Great. Give it up until next time. And finally, we move to John in Pennsylvania. John, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Thank you for being so patient. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Joshua. Um, yeah, I have a question. I might have to jump off here in about 15 minutes, but uh, uh, the question I had um, was really the listening to a lot of the back catalog again. Um, uh, the, you, you had mentioned on a, a number of occasions that taking uh you know telling people that taking welfare that they didn't have to pay into or weren't optional to pay into and therefore they should have taken it i think you had mentioned before you should have taken some welfare when you had a, a chance to take it um and you hadn't done it um and i've been thinking about that with various people i know being being um out of work and whatnot uh and then i came across i think it was number 638 or somewhere in the low 600s there was an episode where you'd said uh, you could probably do a whole show on uh, living off of the government for free, but you didn't do it for obvious reasons to to not promote that kind of thing. Um, but I but I wonder about those two things because you know if it's if it's okay on a small scale and you know you didn't have to pay into Social Security and all these things and 
uh, all these entitlement programs. Um, and therefore you're kind of like, uh, you're kind of cleared to take the benefit when you need it. Um, then, you know, why, why not going the full way on, right. you know, having backup to backup, you know, just like you have an emergency, uh, you, you teach about having emergency funds being in the form of credit cards, if they're used mm-hmm. the right way, right. couldn't that be seen as an ultimate backup to a backup, you know, uh, to, to, you know, either structure yourself to be looking less wealthy than you are and, and having these ways of funding your lifestyle and all that stuff. It's just something that, that occurred to me. Yeah. It's, it's something that I've thought a lot about. I'm not sure that I have a very clear answer, but I'll tell you what my, my concern is. The reason why I don't want to promote the use of welfare programs for personal enrichment is primarily because I believe that that causes a deep level of harm in you and me as individuals. So why is welfare so destructive? Well, I think the one of the reasons why welfare is destructive is it puts somebody into a position where they can be lazy. And this is my fear, that I would become lazy and I would become a taker and I would become unmotivated if I started to participate in welfare programs. So while I could... Um, you know, I could set my life up in such a way that I had a significant amount of money coming in from the government dole. I fear what that would do to my character. Now, on a on a small basis, where where for where for example, on a small basis where I'm excuse me a moment, I need to cough. On a on a small basis where I put myself in a situation where I am um, just you know, taking a little bit of benefit from the program. Uh, you know, for example, I get laid off and I have three months of severance. Well, in that situation, as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's really little, little concern to three months of severance harming my character. Maybe you know, I'm going to have a baby, and so I go and I sign up for Medicaid so that Medicaid will pay, will pay for the costs of paying for my baby. Okay, maybe that would not have a, a significant limit on my character. It's a one-time thing. It's over and done with, et cetera. But I get really nervous about being put into a situation where I have to, where I'm on an ongoing basis being indulged. I'm getting money without being doing work for it. That would hurt my character. And I think I'm, I'm so lazy and, and naturally indolent that I, I fear that that would that would have a ripple effect in my life. And I think it would have a ripple effect on other people's lives as well. Getting something that you haven't worked for and getting it for an, on an ongoing basis has, seems to me, has the effect of creating um, entitlement, has the, has, probably has the effect of creating an ugly character. And if it's not tempered by some other productive area, then I think it can be it can be good, but it harms the self confidence. So let's 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 imagine kind of the ultimate welfare scenario. I'm born as a trust fund baby. My parents are very wealthy. My grandparents are very wealthy, and I'm born as a trust fund baby with a silver spoon in my mouth. So I have no worries financially whatsoever. Now, we can go two different directions to that to, in that welfare system. In the first direction, assume that I have parents that are not 
responsible. And they kind of just ignore me and they give me money and they just say, here, you know, you've got lots of money. Just go and do it. You can spend as much as you want. Here's a credit card. Here's everything you need, et cetera. Well, if I don't have some area of productivity, some area where I'm good, I'm going to have major confidence problems. I'm going to I'm going to not have, feel any confidence because I've never I've never done anything myself. Everything's been given to me. I know that. I can't deny it. That's going to deeply harm my personal confidence. It's going to harm my character. I'm probably going to not have uh, much character. I'm probably not going to have much work ethic. I'm probably not going to have um, the ability to, to engage in, in self-control, to be restrained in my personality. I'm probably going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to probably be a drug addict. I'm probably going to engage in all kinds of behaviors that are personally destructive. And I'm going to be miserable and depressed the whole way through. I personally believe that that's how God has set the world up, that that's, that that's a natural, normal occurrence, that, that when people are, are in that system, the, the, the personal problems they face are, are part of the sanctions for that, that wrong system. Now, let's go back and let's say that I am very rich. My parents are very rich, but they've looked at it and said, we understand that Joshua's going to have all this money because he's born into a wealthy family, and so we're going to shape his character. And maybe that character has nothing to do with money. Maybe I go and they, they teach me to focus on my academics, and maybe I focus on my sports, and I learn to work very hard in that context. Well, now the money itself may not be a problem. The money itself may not cause me a stumbling block. I may be a person filled with character. I have self-confidence because I've faced adversity and I've overcome diversity in my life. And now I can just simply press forward step by step, day by day, and I can build a character that lasts, that stands the test of time. And I can enjoy the fact that I have the money coming in and it's not going to fundamentally cause me harm. As I see it, that's the danger, is I don't want to be that first person, I want to be the second person. And so if somebody uses a welfare program as a temporary thing, fine. I'm building a business. Uh, I, you know, I'm building a business. I don't have an income. Uh, we're having a baby. And so I say, you know what? I don't have any income. I'm just going to go sign up for, um, for, for Medicaid and use Medicaid to pay for my baby. Fine. It's not going to hurt me at all. It's there. No big deal. But as a lifestyle of, of putting myself in a situation where I'm doing it as a lifestyle, I fear that that would cause me to be lazy. It would cause me to lose self-respect, self-confidence. It would push me in a direction of, of having low self-esteem, and that would be destructive to my lifestyle. So that's my, my caution and my hesitation. If you came to me and you said, Hey, Joshua, I started a business last year and I moved to a place where I could get, um, you know, I moved to one of the guaranteed basic income places and I, and I, and I brought it in and I just did that for a time and we had a baby on, on, um, on Medicaid and we, um, used food from, uh, WIC. Okay, fine. But I used it to start a business. I, I think that's not going to hurt anybody. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's morally wrong to do that. Um, but if, but I fear that for everyone who does that, there's another person who says, man, this was actually pretty good. And I fear that I'm that kind of person. I'm that person where if I did that and if I taught others to do that, it could result in, in basically the, not, not the undoing of me, but it could result in, in very significant problems for my life on a long-term basis. My fear, the reason I don't do that show is my fear is that I might, I might contribute to somebody's downfall. And I'm not going to, I don't want to do that, right? I would not, um, you know, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. So 
I would not feed, I, I feed almost anybody, right? I want people to have food. I want to share with what I have. I invite anybody into my home. But if there's somebody that I know who is not willing to work, they are just simply, they're not willing to work. They're a full-time, you know, leech on their parents. Their parents provide all of their, all of their money. Uh, and they just continue on with life, or they're a full-time student, and the government's paying for everything, but they just don't have any interest in getting a job, or they're, um, you know, they're 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 just not willing to work. I'm not. I don't want to enable that. I don't want to feed that person. I don't want to help them in any way. I want them to to recognize that what they're doing is wrong. They need to work. They need to be willing to work. And so my fear is that if I created that <laughs> that course or that product or that show, that I would be contributing to someone's moral downfall in a way that would be that would be really bad by by enabling them to actually live that kind of lifestyle and i don't want to do that so that's my answer to you and uh john dropped off there so um finish up the show by myself but um it's an interesting question and there, there are other aspects as well you know sometimes i there you have this instinct right there's the, the the classic burn it down scenario where you say okay well there was a time when i didn't want to participate in these programs because but now i've realized that since i don't have a choice i'm just going to take the money and you know what why don't i just take more money cuz that that brings the end on faster as well and and <laughs> burn it all down burn it, let me burn it down quickly well we probably a lot of us have those instincts but i don't think that those are are good instincts either. So it's it's one of those areas with a little bit difficult for me. That's it for today's Friday Q&A show. Thank you all for calling in. Remember, if you would like to join me on next week's show, just go to P- Patreon, search for Radical Personal Finance, sign up, for, sign up to support the show on Patreon, and um, that'll give uh, you access to it. And I do that because it helps me to meter the, um, the number of callers. I love doing these shows. I really enjoy it. But helps me to make sure I get really good questions when uh, when we do that. And so I appreciate your support there on, uh, on Patreon. Thank you very much. Uh, been a good week great show today and i don't think i have anything else intelligent to say so if you would like to i guess the last thing i'll just promote that i'm doing consulting work again uh haven't been for a while but if you would like to book a consultation with me you can go to radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult and if you'd like to talk privately through your scenario you can find all the details there and book time with me on that show uh, or on that page radicalpersonalfinance.com slash consult have a great weekend everybody i'll be back with you soon <laughs>